Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. He touches on Top Gun Maverick not appearing in China, if there's a turning point in Hollywood when it comes to the China market, and how this could all play out going forward. Let's dive in. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So lately, big in the headlines is Top Gun and the success it's having, including not being in the China market. So how significant is that? Well, it's it's an interesting story, to say the least. I mean, I think if you if you backtrack and just look at what the movie is about, which is about American exceptionalism and sort of this uh, military that is world class, best in the world and sort of the policemen of the world in a lot of ways, you could see that just the narrative of it, the thematics of it might not be exactly palatable for the Chinese Communist Party to begin with. So I think there was always an idea that it might not get into that market, even though it's a big franchise and has the possibility of generating huge box office. So that was when Paramount made a very good decision if they're thinking about business in China and they brought in Tencent as a financier. But when Tencent actually saw a cut of the movie and saw the trailer for that movie, they saw the Taiwanese flag on the actual jacket, the flight jacket of Tom Cruise's character, and saw the Japanese flag there, too. And they felt like that was a little bit too sensitive in order to try to get that movie approved by censors in China. So they requested Paramount to take it off. Now, Paramount took it off for the trailer, um, but a lot of people noticed it being taken off for the trailer. So it created a geopolitical controversy around the world, and particularly in the United States. So that heat that was turned on back in 2019 continued as COVID delayed the release of the movie. And I think ultimately, Tom Cruise and the filmmakers involved and the studio Paramount said, enough is enough. Um, this movie doesn't stand a great chance of getting in the market, number one. Number two is a lot of the movies from Hollywood that had been getting into the market hadn't been making all that much. And number three is, hey, we're American. We should protect free speech rights and the freedom of creativity rights of our filmmakers and to edit something like that for the world because China is demanding it just doesn't seem right. So they put those flags back in. And of course, now China's not happy about it. But I would say the rest of the world is pretty happy about it to the tune of $300 million worldwide. And that doesn't include a single dollar coming from China. What is interesting, though, there's another book called Red Carpet that kind of mentions how this all played out and was saying when Paramount pitched it in 2017, part of the financing was, as you mentioned, Tencent backing it, but also what was expected to come from the China market. But what do you see kind of changing it besides the American theme? Was maybe COVID playing in? Would there be even a profit from China? Well, I think if you look at the returns of a lot of Hollywood movies five years ago, versus the returns of movies uh, during COVID and during that post-COVID period when theaters were back open sort of last summer, the, the returns were nowhere near what they used to be. So that risk-reward calculus of, of dealing with the aggravation of, of placating censors, placating the Chinese government, and 
in in a, sort of the effort of generating as much box office as possible in China, that risk reward calculus just didn't make sense anymore. So the aggravation, if you look at movies like Mulan or you look at Chloe Zhao involved with the Eternals or Shang-Chi, which had Chinese thematics in it, um, there's lots of movies that had been sort of going overboard in regards to placating the Chinese government, yet they simply weren't getting in the market or just weren't generating great box office returns. So I think now you look at studios going, well, wait a minute, is this all worth it anymore? And the fact is, if you look at, say, the Women's Tennis Association, who took a stand when the Peng Shui incident occurred last year, where she took a stand against a very powerful former Chinese Communist Party official over harassment claims, and she sort of disappeared, the Women's Tennis Association came to her defense. And if you look at how the brand built of the Women's Tennis Association after taking that stance, after taking a stance that protected human rights, that protected freedom of speech rights, that protected a lot of the values and principles that we all have, that a lot of the players have associated with that league, it became a huge brand builder for them. So even though they lost events in China, they lost sponsors in China, they gained events around the world and they gained sponsors elsewhere. So it actually became a moneymaker for them in doing the right thing. And I think you're seeing the same thing in regards to something like Top Gun. I think you're seeing the same thing in regards to a movie like Spider-Man where they were requested to remove the Statue of Liberty and ultimately Sony denied that request. Um, people are rewarding doing the right thing. So I like to say that doing the right thing and capitalism can actually coexist, and we need more people to realize that. On that note, Chris, do you see this kind of being a sustainable trend in Hollywood, not needing the China market, or is that due to the lockdowns? How do you see this playing out? I think uh, Hollywood has found a way to monetize premium and I would call super premium content, which is studio level movies around the world in a much more efficient way. So the monetization and the efficiency to monetize has created better revenues and better profits for the studios. So quite frankly, China is not needed as much in the equation anymore. And there are actually studios now that are green lighting films with a zero in the China column. And so with these Hollywood films, how much money is China getting out of it? Do you see maybe China starting to pander to get the movies in? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the reasons why they needed Hollywood movies was to fill the seats of all these theaters that had been built. And these theaters weren't just standalone theaters. They were mega complexes that were part of the cornerstones of lots of real estate development. So if they couldn't make those theaters um, healthy, then those real estate developments around those theaters would be unhealthy too. So they really needed Hollywood to fill the seats. But now, as we've seen, China has really essentially learned how to fish. In order for us to sell the fish of Hollywood in that market, we had to teach them how to do it themselves. And now they're doing it extremely well to the tune of several movies now that are approaching that $1 billion U.S. box office mark in China alone. So do they need Hollywood moving forward? I would question the jury is still out on that. I would imagine that 
if Hollywood just goes back and makes the movies that they want to make, and a lot of those movies are going to have nothing sensitive about China simply because they're not stories that are relevant to anything sensitive about China. If they're good movies, they're universal, China is going to allow them in the market to be monetized because those movies will help fill seats and they'll placate the, con the consumer over there that's looking for some of that Western content. Um, but anything else, anything that's marginally sensitive or um, you know, essentially displays aspirational qualities of democracy or Western values and principles, those movies are probably going to be persona non grata. And so going back to Top Gun real quick, do you see this as just like maybe a one-time thing or you kind of mentioned already, like maybe Hollywood is learning to just do whatever they want. So how do you see that playing out? Well, we've seen essentially Hollywood and we don't know exactly who's making these decisions and why, but we saw with Doctor Strange, the latest Marvel movie that came out, they actually had um, an Epoch Times, the Falun Gong uh, essentially um, owned and, and operated newspaper stand um, in one of the scenes, which is obviously very aggravating to the Chinese censors and to China. Um, who put it in there and why it's there is hard to you know, sort of define, but the fact of the matter, it was in there. And there's a lot of people looking at those movies in production and in post-production, and they knew it was there. We also saw Sony, who allowed um, the filmmakers to protect their freedom of creative creative expression and keep the Statue of Liberty in the third act of that movie, right? And that was in defiance of what China wanted. So we're seeing a pushback against what China is demanding, mainly because the China market doesn't mean as much as it used to to Hollywood, but also they've pushed it too far and enough is enough. And I think Hollywood has said, you know what? We're going to be rewarded by taking a stand against China elsewhere, even if we lose that market. That was Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon. And after the break, we hear more from Fenton on how we got to this stage where Hollywood has to pander to Beijing. That's all coming up in a minute here on China in Focus. And now, real quick, I'm curious about kind of going back to how this all started and how big of a role China played. As you kind of mentioned, they just kind of kept pushing it to the point that Hollywood was like, enough's enough, right? So in your book, actually, which I see behind you and I have right here as well, uh, you kind of mentioned how this all started almost in 2013 with Iron Man 3 that really opened the markets and also Looper. So how much did you, how much did these studios have to change to really gain access to that China market? Well, I mean, first of all, as you mentioned, Red Carpet by Eric Schwartzel, he talks about 1997, where the movies Kundun and Seven Years in Tibet and Red Corner were made. And those were all very sensitive to the Tiananmen Square, Tibet, um, Taiwan issues, et cetera. So there was a real problem with those movies in, in regards to not only getting them into the market, but also creating a blackballing effect for everybody involved with the films themselves. So if you look at censorship, there's a couple versions of it or propaganda, a couple versions of it. Number one is it's that premeditated censorship that after 1997 occurred where even ideas that were 
considered slightly sensitive to China were essentially killed at the inception uh, stage. They were never made into scripts. They were never developed into films. Then you had uh, projects like Looper and Iron Man 3 behind me, which were actually developed to brand integrate China into those films. I mean, Looper in particular, which I talk about in the book, um, that movie originally was supposed to take place in France in the future. But China really wanted the future to look like it was coming towards China. China was the mecca of where things would be, where people wanted to go 40 years in the future. So we actually changed the future location from France to China to placate that directive. And I consider that more of a brand integration propaganda that was put into the content itself. And then, of course, if you look at the Taiwanese flag and Top Gun, that is more of a post-production editing that's done for the China market in order to get a particular film into China. The problem with the further encroachment that kept occurring in regards to that type of censorship is that at one point, it was about censoring things just to get it into China, and that censorship just applied to the China market. But over time, China started to push studios to censor that same aspect of the movie around the world so global audiences saw exactly what they wanted the Chinese audience to see, which was the Chinese government's version of soft power influence around the world. They were essentially trying to use Hollywood to spread their own narrative. And that's when Hollywood started to believe that this was getting too far. And that's where I started to stand up to it in 2019. And so, Chris, what would be some examples of how maybe American audiences would be swayed with this Chinese soft power without realizing it? Well, for one, you see it in all kinds of businesses. I mean, whether it's the hotel industry or airlines, they're not allowed to refer to Taiwan as a separate market. It's all part of China. The maps have to show it's all part of China. And you see that whether it's in you know particular movies where they show the nine dash line in a particular way or whether it's on the internet site when you're making a reservation for a flight. Um, that type of soft power influence is shaping the way that we think about things that China wants us to digest and believe in, which is, you know, in the case of China or in the case of Taiwan, that Taiwan's part of China. We also saw the same thing in regards to the NBA when Daryl Morey, the GM of the Houston Rockets, tweeted out his support for Hong Kong and the protesters there. He said, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. That tweet he made while in Japan. That tweet was read around the world, including in United States of America, and people digested it and said, oh, you know what? I believe in that, too. That's a human rights issue. That's a stand-up for democracy issue. That's a uh, freedom of speech issue. Um, but China, even though Twitter is not in that market, wanted to essentially delete that tweet, wanted the NBA to retract what that tweet said, and in fact punish the NBA for two full years from that market because of that tweet. And that's because they wanted the rest of the world to believe the same thing that they wanted their own people to believe, which is Hong Kong is part of China. China has every right to go in there and replace government officials, replace the, replace the court system, um, you know, essentially have the jurisdiction of the courts um, take place in Beijing, all the other things that were going on, including moving a train station into the central part of Hong Kong, et cetera. 
they wanted the rest of the world to believe what they were doing was in the right. And that's how this soft power and this house, the shaping of people digesting the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party occurs. And it happens in a very sort of um, almost subconscious kind of way. A lot of people don't see it or feel it or touch it, but it is happening. It seems on that note, too, there's also kind of a change in how the enemy in movies are portrayed. For instance, I think Tenet and then also Sandra Bullock's film Gravity, originally it was supposed to have Russia in there. Well, actually, it was supposed to have, like, Russia as the saviors, and it became China as the saviors. And another one, it was supposed to be China as the bad guys, became Russia as the bad guys. So it seems in America there is the consensus that Russia is bad, and then no one really thinks about China. So how much do you see Hollywood playing into that? Well, Hollywood plays into it a lot. I, you know, I mean, James Bond, for instance. I mean, what villain would make the best villain in, in those type of plots, it probably would be China. I mean, China is our greatest national security challenge as a country. It's the other superpower on the other side of the world that it's spreading its wings and is, is trying to exert its influence um, outside of its borders in a way that we've never seen before. So the fact that James Bond can't have a villain from China because the James Bond filmmakers and the studio behind it are too worried that that would prevent the movie from getting into China or perhaps even worse blackball everybody involved with the China uh, with the film in China um, that's something that you know we need to rectify because it just doesn't make sense to constantly make those Cold War type enemies when the world is a very different world today. It's very modernized, and we have all kinds of different threats and rivals and challenges around the world that we should be free to put into the plots of these Hollywood films. And on the note of the two superpowers and this like Cold War mentality, Chris, in your book, you kind of mentioned how you had almost a shift in perspective. You were kind of pro-Beijing for a long time, and then towards the end, you became more hawkish towards China, especially after the pandemic. So going forward, what would you like to see done, especially in the U.S., in terms of dealing with China? Well, it's a great question. I mean, yes, I think everybody engaged in the U.S.-China exchange, whether it's somebody in the military or politics or C-suite executive to athlete or celebrity, We've all started to realize that what we've been doing in the last 40 years is not in the best, um, you know, the outcome of what that past 40 years is, if we continue on the status quo, is not in the best interest of the long-term health of the United States of America. I mean, we are selling out values, principles, and, and various other rights that we hold dearly in order to get access to that market. Now, what's important is I was never pro-Beijing. I was always a patriot of the United States of America, but I firmly believed in, in the mission that so many of us believed in, which was the more we open China to the products and services of the United States, the more GDP growth we'd have in the United States, the more jobs we create in the United States, and the more those products and services would spread the, you know, essentially the aspirational quality of democracy inside a communist country. Now, over time, we started to realize, well, that mission wasn't exactly what was happening. And I think everybody involved now understands that problem. And most of us have decided to say, hey, we need to fix this. We need to right the playing field. We need to balance it. I think there are 
super hawks that would like to see a full decoupling from the two superpowers working together. I'm completely and adamantly against that. I think there needs to be engagement between the two countries. I think cultural and commercial exchange is a great glue to keep the two countries from going to war, which is something no, no one in the globe should want. Um, but we need to level the playing field. We need to stop with their encroachment on who we are as people in the United States and our other Western allies. We need to push back on a lot of the things they've gotten overly aggressive on. And quite frankly, we have a trade dynamic that is very imbalanced, that we need to start balancing and balance it quick because we are losing valuable time to get this right. And Chris, on that note, going back to kind of in the beginning how you mentioned Hollywood can have conscience and capitalism, and then just now with kind of balancing trade, what would be some actionable steps that could maybe help get that implemented? In regards to balancing trade, I mean, there's a lot of uh, simple things that could um, move the dynamic very quickly in a short amount of time. Number one is we should have the WTO designate China as a developed nation rather than a developing nation, because um, that would cause them to have to, um, you know, abide by lots of new regulatory policy um, in terms of competing with other developed nations. Um, they get away with a lot more because they're designated as still developing, which is unbelievable when you consider the fact that their economy is as large, if not larger, than the United States. Number two is, and we know that the SEC is working on this, but we need to have them abide by the same accounting principles um, that all other international companies and domestic companies have to in order to have access to our capital markets here in the U.S. China has been very adamant about hiding behind state secrets laws in order to circumvent those type of regulations. And that's something that needs to stop. I mean, let's face it, is there really such a thing as a private uh, sector business or company in China? They're all very beholden to Beijing. So whether they're actually a, 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 you know, a nationally owned company or whether they're a state-owned enterprise or whether they're considered private, they still are, their first priority is what does Beijing want me to do as a company? Um, so that's, those are two perfect examples of it. Um, and I think also we need to really look at what our protectionist policies are, where our tariffs are, how do we level the playing field enough to get essentially the trade balanced rather than imbalanced where we're importing way more than exporting. And on top of that, as we've seen from COVID, unfortunately, a lot of our supply chain that is crucial to national security, whether it's on the healthcare side of things or whether it's components for actual technology that we're using in defense or using in very important national security type of uh, products and services, we need to move that part of the supply chain either back onshore here in the U.S. or with true allies around the world. And Chris, any last words you'd like to add? Look, as, as we spoke about before off camera, I am not somebody that wants to see us move into a traditional Cold War or a war. We need engagement between the two countries, but we need to have the business lobby, the military, the politicians, leadership, and ha actually the voter base of the United States and our Western allies to get behind this idea of creating leverage a unified leverage 
to push back on a lot of the aggressive behavior of China, um, not only towards us, but towards many of our allies around the world. If we push back, they will retreat. And once they retreat, yes, there's a face, face issue that's going to take some time to get over. But as that gets over, both countries know that they need each other. And when China gets over the face loss and realizes they went too far, they're going to essentially come back to the negotiating table and say, you know what? Let's balance this. Let's make it right, because we need to figure out how to coexist with you, the United States, you, our NATO allies, you, Taiwan, et cetera, because the world is too small to have a frozen relationship between the two superpowers. So that is my number one point that I want to get across, is that this full decoupling or going to war with a country that has a very advanced military capability is nothing that anybody should wish for. There are smarter ways to go about it. Cooler heads should prevail. And let's get serious about it and talk about it and discuss it, because there's no right or wrong solution. We need to all work together to come up with the best path forward. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Sai Jen. That was Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.